The theme for our quarterly missions weekend is across the street, across the country, and around the world. And that's very biblical because Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone, everywhere. And that means that you and I need to be sharing Jesus with people across the street and across the country and around the world. Now, before we look together at an important Bible passage in Luke 12, I have good news and bad news for you this morning. First of all, the good news. The good news is that the percentage of people living in the entire world who claim to be personal followers of Jesus Christ has grown from 3% of the total world population to over 12% of the total world population in my lifetime. In 1945, the year that I was born, and so now you know how old I am, there were 80 million true followers of Jesus in the entire world. Today, in the year 2015, there are over 800 million true followers of Jesus Christ. That's a growth of 3% to over 12% of the total world population in my lifetime. More people are coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ right now than any other time in the history of the world. We are living in the most unprecedented time of spiritual harvesting the world has ever known. I can't believe you're not clapping. Now the bad news. The bad news is that as we sit here this morning, nine out of every ten people living in the world right now are spiritually lost outside of personal faith in Jesus Christ, headed to a Christless eternity in hell. Nine out of every ten people. And if you drove here this morning, you passed some of them on your way. You say, wait a minute, Dr. Murray, you just told us there were over 800 million believers. Yes, but there are over 7 billion people in the world. So if you do the math, that means 1 out of 10 knows the Lord, 9 out of 10 do not. 2 out of every 3 people living in the world today not only are spiritually lost, but have never once heard a clear explanation of the gospel. No one has ever told them how they can be saved through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Two out of every three people. And one out of every three people living in the world today not only is lost, not only has never once heard a clear explanation of the gospel, but one out of every three people living in the world today has no one living near them who can tell them about Jesus even if they want to hear. That's the bad news. 
Now, with the good news and the bad news in our minds, and in light of the fact that today at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church is faith mission giving time, and if you don't know what that's all about, pick up one of these wonderful little booklets that's been prepared for you. You can get them as the, at the doors as you leave today. That will explain what faith mission giving is. With that in our minds, I want us to look together at Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. And I'm going to be reading these verses from the New International Version of the Bible. I realize that the verses are printed in your bulletin in the uh, English Standard Version. I'm going to be reading them from the New International Version, almost identical. Uh, you follow the words on the screen or in your own Bible as I read. This is the Word of God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? The word arbiter means referee. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Now, before we look into this passage and I give you a bit of introduction to it, I want to just comment on two phrases in the scripture passage which we just read. The first one is found at the end of verse 15, where we read these words, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. Do you believe that? If you could follow the average American around, you would not conclude that that is true. If you could follow the average American evangelical Christian around, you would conclude that that is not true. I flew yesterday from Bangkok, 
Thailand back to America. I was meeting for two weeks with 527 medical missionaries who are serving the Lord in 40 different countries of Asia. I asked them this question. How many of you were told by family or friends that you are making a stupid mistake by coming out here as medical missionaries when you could be making a ton of money with your credentials if you stayed in North America? And over a third of them raised their hands. You can't live and travel overseas like my wife and I have and come back to America and ever be the same again. I remember the first time we came back to the States after living four years overseas. As my head hit my pillow that night, I said to myself, we're back in America where want has become need, where luxury has become necessity, where privileges have become entitlements, where optional features have become standard equipment, and where even if you can't justify getting something, you can always wait until it goes on sale. My brothers and sisters here this morning at St. Andrew's Press, have you learned that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Have you? The other phrase I want you to look at is in verse 21, the last three words, which are rich toward God. Rich toward God. If you were to die this week, would anyone here at St. Andrew's Press who knows you well choose these three words as a fitting epitaph for your tombstone. Here lies a woman who was rich toward God. Here lies a man who was rich toward God. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but the longer I live, the more I want to be a man who is rich toward God. It was my privilege growing up in the family that I grew up in, in the Northeast, to know one of our world's great hymn writers. His name was Thomas Chisholm. Thomas Chisholm wrote, Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. He wrote, The Mercies of God. He wrote, Living for Jesus, a life that is true. He wrote, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. He lived in the town of Vineland, New Jersey. You couldn't visit that man without being struck by the threadbare surroundings in which he lived. A little uninsulated clapboard cottage, threadbare furniture, a little wood-burning pot-belly stove to keep the house warm in the winter. But you couldn't spend an hour with that man 
and then walk out of his front door without saying to yourself, I have just been with a man who is rich toward God. He was an insurance salesman, gave almost all of his money away to the Gideons to try to get the Bible into public schools and public places. Had very little in the way of this world's goods. But he was a man who was rich toward God. That's why he could write words like pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. I want to be like that. I want to be a man who is rich toward God. Now, there's several things I want to say about this Bible passage that we just read before we get into the passage. The first thing is that this is a very familiar story. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody talk about this story of the rich fool? If you're here this morning and you're thinking, oh, I've heard this one before, there's nothing new for me, oh, don't say that. God's Word always comes with freshness to a person who approaches it with an open heart. Secondly, not only is this story familiar, it's a parable. It says in verse 16 that he spoke this parable to them. Now, the reason I point this out is because when many people hear the word parable, they subconsciously shift into another gear and they say to themselves, ah, that's just a parable. See, that was the problem that Ezekiel had in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 20, he was complaining to the Lord, and he said this, Ah, sovereign Lord, they are all saying about me, isn't he just telling parables? Now watch, a parable, though not a true story, is a true-to-life story. That's what the word parable means, a story that comes alongside real life. And a parable, though not a true story, represents the way life really is. It would be as if I told you I was in the city I grew up in, in Northeast United States, the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, what we lovingly called the city of brotherly shove. And one night I was walking down a dark street and suddenly someone jumped from an alley and they beat me on the head and they stabbed me in the back and they took my wallet and they left me bleeding and dying on the side of the street. Now that has never happened to me, but it happens in Philadelphia every day. So if you told a story like that, it would be a true-to-life story. Third thing we need to say about this passage, it's familiar, it's a parable, and it is for everyone. This story is for everyone seated here in this building this morning. You say, no, it's not, Dr. Murray. This is for my non-Christian neighbor who does not go to church in South Carolina on Sunday. He stays home, he waxes his boat, he walks his dog, and he watches Seinfeld rerun. This is not for us. Who said it's not for us? Look at the first verse of this chapter. It says, Jesus began to speak first 
to his disciples. And I always laugh when I read verse 41. Look at verse 41 of Luke 12. Peter said to him, Lord, are you speaking this parable to us or to everyone? You know why I laugh when I read that verse? Because I think I know what Peter's hoping Jesus will say. I think he's hoping Jesus will say, Peter, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the big crowd back there. You don't have to listen. No. What does Jesus do? He goes right on and he tells another story as if to say, Peter, I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to them. I'm speaking to everybody. Listen up, pal. Now, in my Bible that I read from this morning, between verses 12 and 13 of Luke chapter 12, there is an editorial insertion. It is not part of the inspired biblical text, but it says this, the parable of the rich fool. You'll see it on the screen, the parable of the rich fool. How many of you have a Bible here this morning that says something like that? All right, all right, you see that? Now, that's not part of the Holy Spirit-inspired text. That was placed there by the Bible editors to show you the division in the chapter. Are you following me? But the reason I point this out is because the wording of this editorial insertion leads to the first of three misconceptions which most people have when they read or hear the verses that we just read a moment ago. And here is the first misconception. I would like you to write this down. There is space for you to do that on page 8 of your worship bulletin. Write this down. Here it is. Lots of people think this man was a fool because he was rich. Lots of people think this man was a fool because he was rich. I mean, that's what all of us who aren't rich think, right? Now, I'm going to make a statement that you are going to be tempted to forget as I proceed in this message this morning. But I don't want you to forget this statement. Here it is. Listen carefully. The Bible never says it's wrong to be rich. The Bible never says it's wrong to be rich. Some of the godliest people on the pages of Scripture were enormously wealthy. And some of the richest people living right now in 2015 are Deeply spiritual followers of God. The Bible never says it's wrong to be rich. But lots of people think that this man was a fool because he was rich. The Bible doesn't say that. Now, if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 12, I want you to keep your hand there so we can come back to it. But I want you to turn in the Old Testament to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 9. We're going to read 9, 10, and 11 of Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind, or test the conscience, as another translation says, 
to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Now look at verse 11 of Jeremiah 17. Like a partridge that hatches eggs it did not lay is the man who gains riches by unjust means. When his life is half gone, they will desert him, and in the end, he will prove to be a fool. Do you see what Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 9 to 11 is talking about? These verses are talking about getting riches dishonestly. Getting riches dishonestly. Now hear me. If you are here this morning at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church and you have whatever you have in the way of this world's goods and you got it dishonestly, whether that was, you know, blue-collar street crime or white-collar computer crime, but you got it dishonestly, even if no one else knows, even if you take that secret to your grave, God knows He will hold you accountable for that, and you are a fool. That's what Jeremiah 17, verses 9 to 11 teaches. Have I made that clear? All right, now listen carefully. Turn back, please, to Luke chapter 12 and listen carefully. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 to 11 has absolutely nothing to do with Luke chapter 12. You say, wait a minute. What did you take us there for then if it doesn't have anything to do with Luke chapter 12? All right. Now watch. A lot of people think this man was a fool because he was rich. Second misconception. Write it down. A lot of people think this man was rich because he was a crook. And the Bible doesn't say that either. In fact, the Bible tells us how this man made his money. Somebody help me out here this morning. Dale, do they speak to you sometime in, when you're preaching? Okay. Sometime. sometime. All right. Help me out. Help me out. Tell, somebody tell me, what was this man's profession? He was a farmer, thank you. Now, I don't know that much about farming, but my name is George. <laughs> Did you ever get a book that tells you what, you know, what all the names mean? And I looked it up. Somebody gave me a book. I looked it up, George, and it said, George, farmer. I like that because a farmer's a man who's outstanding in his field. Oh, all right, all right. Now, I don't know that much about farming, but I do know enough to know that if you are a farmer and you make it in life, you've got to be early rising. You've got to work hard from dawn to dusk. You've got to work with your own two hands in order to get a profit. That is the picture of the man given in Luke chapter 12. Listen carefully. There is nothing in the text that says that this man artificially inflated the prices of his products. There is nothing in the text that says this man purposely underpaid his field workers. There is nothing in the text that says this man kept a double set of books so he could cheat the government of its rightful tax. 
No. All it says is he was a farmer. He worked hard. He got what he deserved because he worked for it with his own two hands. I don't know about you, but I like this man. This man is the kind of guy I like. This man was a hard worker. In fact, it's biblical. Do you know I believe in the biblical, Judeo-Christian, Protestant, capitalistic, free enterprise work ethic? I like, I like the ad on television. It's not on anymore, but it used to be on Smith Barney, Smith Barney ad, and the old gentleman comes on the screen and he says, I got my money the old-fashioned way. I earned it. Ooh, I like that. My wife and I were in Washington, D.C. for a rare one-day pleasure outing of tourism to see our nation's capital. I got so upset because we got stuck in a traffic jam for two hours, couldn't budge, and it's because there was a big crowd of people having a protest march, and they were blocking the traffic, and they were protesting the unemployment situation in America, carrying signs, we want jobs, we want jobs. And as they walked past buildings, right in the windows of the buildings were signs that said, help wanted, apply within. All right, so you have a degree in economics and you can't find a job in the banking industry. Fry a few hamburgers. Clean some motel rooms. Pump a little gas. Work with your own two hands and get what you deserve because you work for it. Now watch. That's exactly the picture of the man we have here. He's hardworking. He's early rising. He's honest. He knows how to conserve his profits. And God says to this man, this man that I like very much because of his work ethic, God says to this man, you are. A foo. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. And just in case you've lost the real definition of the word fool, let me show you the dictionary, dictionary definition of fool. Here it is. Mr. Webster tells us that fool means a person lacking in reason or intelligence, an idiot, one who engages in absurd conduct. Now, I teach preaching at Columbia International University. And I teach my students that it's not uncommon when you're preaching for somebody to fall asleep or somebody to be making their grocery list or somebody to be checking their cell phone or, you know, somebody to be dozing off or thinking about something else. And so every now and then you just need to put a little story in there to kind of get people's attention again, you know. I'm sure that's exactly what Jesus was doing here when telling this story, he suddenly said, and God said to that man, you fool. And the minute Jesus said that, everybody looked up and they punched each other with their elbows. Did you hear what he just said? Did you hear what he just said? He called that man a fool. Now, growing up, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. And my parents, and I have two brothers, and I love my brothers, but we did fight. And there was one thing my parents told me I could never call my brother, and that was fool. And do you know why my parents told me I could never call my brother a fool? Because God told them that. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, anyone who calls his brother a fool is in danger of the fires of hell. That's why if I ever said fool to my brother, I just needed to head to the woodshed because I knew what was going to happen. And here, God calls this hardworking man a fool. And so my question to you this morning, and I've prayed about this message, my question to you this morning is this. Are there here at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church this morning, are there any early rising, hardworking, honest fools here this morning? Why did God call this man a fool? I'd like to give you four reasons. I'm going to talk about Two of them together, and then we're going to be done, all right? You might want to write these down. Number one, God called this man a fool because he forgot God. Now, as a good Jew living in the time of Jesus, I don't think if you backed this farmer against a wall and said to him, do you believe in God? I don't think he would say no. But if you could follow him around every day without him knowing you were there, Nothing he ever said or did would give you any indication that God had anything to do with his life. You say, how do you know that? Well, the way to discover what a man forgets is to look closely at what a man remembers. Look at this verse from the text. You'll see it on the screen. Here's the man speaking. Here's what he says. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there will I store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to myself, question, is there any question in your mind who this man's thinking about? My degrees, my credentials, my reputation, my abilities, my house, my business, my 401k plan, my diversified portfolio, my family, my property, me, my. God says, you are a fool. Let's go back to the question. Why did God call this man a fool? Number one, because he forgot God. Number two, because he confused surplus with security. He confused surplus with security. He figured that because he had a lot, he was safe. Just ask the employees of Enron if that's true. Ask the investors with Bernie Madoff if that's true. He confused surplus with security. Number three, God called this man a fool, not only because he forgot God and he confused surplus with security, but because he lived only for time and not for eternity. What did he say? He said, plenty of goods laid up for many years. What's he talking about? He's talking about the moment from when he's speaking to the day that he dies, many years. Plenty of goods laid up for many years. He lived only for time and not for eternity. And lastly, God called this man a fool because he assumed he had lots of time. What did he say? Many years. How long did he have? Less than 24 hours. 
You know, it's a scary thing to realize, and this is statistically proven. It's a scary thing to realize that the vast majority of people who die, die when they least expect to. Now, I want to just talk about two of these four reasons. I'm going to put them together, and I'm going to summarize them with a word that I learned after my wife and I had served for years on the mission field and came back to North America. And this word was kind of like on everybody's lips. It's the E word. Here it is on the screen. Are you ready? Equity. Equity. What? You don't have any equity? You got to have equity. I mean, how are you going to get a home equity loan? How are you going to get a reverse mortgage? You've got to have equity. Now, before I talk a little bit more about this, I'd like to share with you the third misconception that people have when they read the passage that we read this morning. Let's review. Number one, lots of people think this man was a fool because he was rich. The Bible doesn't say that. Number two, lots of people think this man was rich because he was a crook. Bible doesn't say that either. And third misconception, a lot of people think this man wanted to be rich so he could live a wild, sinful life. And the Bible doesn't say that either. Oh, yes, it does, Dr. Murray. You know, you biblical preachers need to look more closely at the text. Look what it says, Dr. Murray, verse 19. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. We know what this guy is. He's a party animal. Let me ask you a question, dear friends, this morning. What does the word eat mean? Mean? It means eat. What does the word drink means? It means satisfy your thirst. What does the word be merry means? It means be happy. Listen to what this man is saying. This man is saying, I just want to earn enough in life to have a roof over my head, a lazy boy chair, Monday night football, and enough money in the bank not to be an unnecessary burden to my children. And God looks at him and says, you are. A fool. Now, let me give you the definition of equity. Are you ready? Equity is the money value of real estate in excess of its mortgaged indebtedness. Everybody here that's a homeowner knows about this. You know, it's the part of the house you really own as compared to what the bank still owns. Are you, are you with me? All right. But let's broaden the definition. Because equity is not just real estate. Here it is. Equity is sufficient savings for temporal security. That's what this man wanted. He said, plenty of goods laid up for many years. Stores things up for himself. So here, dear friends, this morning is the question that this passage asks of you and me. Here it is. What are you living for? Equity? or eternity. Now, if you'll indulge me for just a few more minutes, I would like to do something I rarely do in a public message. I didn't even ask your pastor if I could do this, but I want to share with you a few details about the personal financial side of my life. 
Before coming to Columbia International University in 2000, my wife and I were career missionaries living on a modest monthly missionary financial allowance for 31 years. During our years overseas, we never owned a home. We never owned a car. We did not even own most of the furnishings in our home. Our missionary salary for a family in Latin Europe, Italy, where the cost of living was 30% higher than in North America, our missionary salary was $290 per month. I did not realize that for four years we lived below the poverty line in America. I could have asked for food stamps. I didn't even know I could. We never missed a meal, but we did eat lots of pasta. Fourteen years after we were married, I bought our first car. It was in 1983, and I was able to scrape together enough to buy a 17-year-old 1966 Dodge Coronet for $237. During those 31 years of missionary service, if I or most of the missionaries I was serving with walked into a South Carolina savings and loan company and asked for a loan, they would not have touched me with a 10-foot pole. Their first question would be, do you have any equity? Do you have any collateral to put up against the loan you're seeking? And I would have said, well, I have a beautiful wife and four kids. And they would have said, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about things that have real value. That's exactly what they would say. From the first year of our marriage, right out of college, and for all the missionary years following that, my wife and I agreed that with the Lord's help, we would discipline ourselves to follow two biblical principles when it comes to any money that came into our hands. The first principle is generous giving. The second principle is careful saving. Both are biblical. We started our giving at the tithe level, 10% before taxes. And over the years, we've moved up from there. To practice saving, we asked our mission organization to take $5 a month out of that $290 check before sending that support check to us on the mission field. And we had them put that money, $5, into a green passbook savings account in a local bank here in the States. By deliberately living below our means, we discovered the most amazing law of economics. When you spend less than you get, money accumulates. <laughs> on our first furlough, after four years on the mission field, we went to that bank to check on our savings account, and one of the bankers, noticing that we hadn't touched that money, suggested that we transfer those funds into a CD. I'd never heard of a CD, you know, certificate of deposit. He told us, FDIC insured, greater interest. I said, great. So we put it over there. And then over the years, those savings built up, and in fact, we asked our mission eventually to Take $10 a month instead of 5 and then $15 a month instead of 10 And over the years, those savings build up, and from time to time, we would borrow from that fund and always paid ourselves back. And 
From time to time, the Lord would clearly speak to us about a special need that was over and above our regular giving, and we would withdraw a chunk to give toward that need. It was always a joy to do that. Now, the major underlying thought that we had in our discipline savings plan was our children and college. The Lord has given us four children, and it was our desire as parents that our children would have the same educational advantages that we, their parents, had. Both my wife and I are college graduates, and we wanted our children to have that same educational foundation. After 19 years of careful savings, it came time for our first daughter to go to college. We were living at the time in Chicago. She decided to come to CIU, the cost of which then and even now is more modest than many other colleges. All this to say that when it came time for our first daughter to come to college, our accumulated savings with interest amounted to enough to pay for her first year of college, and then it was all gone. We had no other equity. And we had three more children on the way to college. Now, when I share this with people, although they don't usually come right out and say anything, I can see them look at me with a look of holy horror, and I know what they're thinking. What? Married for many years with four children, and he doesn't have any equity? That man must be a fool. But I find it extremely instructive that here in this holy and spirit-inspired Bible passage in Luke chapter 12, God calls the man who had equity a fool. When I assumed the presidency at CIU in January of 2000, I was 55 years old. Thinking about the future and the fact that I wasn't getting any younger, I decided it would be prudent for me to seek out a competent financial planner, which I did right here in Columbia. In the first session with that financial planner, he told me that in order for him to do his job well, I couldn't keep any financial secrets from him. I needed to tell him everything that I had that did not take long. <laughs> when I finished and he assessed my financial situation, he told me gently but firmly, quote, humanly speaking, you are in big trouble. The reason he said humanly speaking is because he was and is a wonderful believer in Jesus Christ, and he knew that my wife and I had deliberately chosen to follow the Lord into a missionary vocation of financial frugality. He went on to say that with careful planning, we would be able to put together a modest but responsible financial plan for the future, which is what my wife have done over the past 15 years here in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that the missionary profession to which God called my wife and me and hundreds of other missionaries like us was not an equity-building proposition. Now, watch. I am not proud of what I just told you, nor am I ashamed. It's just a fact of life that has accompanied our seeking to follow the Lord, knowing that when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he promises to meet all your material needs and 
he has. Now, before I come to the conclusion of the message, I'm just about there. Let me give you a wonderful postscript to what I just shared with you. Three of our four children have, all three of them have more than one college degree. And at the end of their first college degree, four years of college, not one of them had a single dollar of educational debt on graduation day. And our fourth child decided he wanted to join the United States Marines, which he did, and after a promotion and a voluntary honorable discharge as a veteran, he's now gainfully and meaningfully employed in the business world. Now, don't ask me how all this happened. It just did. Our kids applied for need scholarships. They kept their grades up to qualify for merit scholarships. They all worked during college, and with the modest help we and their grandparents gave them, they all graduated with no educational debt and are living happy, healthy, productive lives with their spouses today. Praise the Lord. Now, actually, I do have equity, and I've had it even before my wife and I were married, and that equity is found. Uh, let's just go back to the question. What are we living for, equity or eternity? Here's my equity. Ready? Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Many times during our missionary years, I would have people ask me, how can you sleep at night knowing you don't have any nest egg to fall back on. And I always show them Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. Look at the words on the screen. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And if you see my wife later today and ask her, she'll tell you the only thing this man needs to sleep at night is the opportunity. <laughs> so here's my big question. Here's my big question. Are you ready? Just before we pray, here's my big question. If some people are willing to do without equity in order to go to the unreached people of the world, shouldn't the rest of us be willing to do without equity in order to send them? By the way, I have this message in my sermon notebook in a section entitled, Messages to Give When You Don't Want to Be Invited Back. So here's the question on the screen. Look at it again. What are you living for, sir, ma'am, married couple, grandparents, parents, young professionals? What are you living for, equity or eternity? Now, don't you dare leave here this morning saying that the guest speaker said it's wrong to have equity. I did not say that. Don't you dare leave here this morning saying the guest speaker said it's wrong to own a home. I did not say that. You see, the question is not do you have things. The question is do things have you. And American society has been hacked by things. We don't even realize. When leading the Evangelical Alliance mission, 
We had 1,200 missionaries in 42 different countries. During my six years of leading that mission, we accepted 480 missionary candidates for missionary service, and 33% of them, 160 fully qualified and trained missionaries, never made it to the mission field. And the number one reason was because they couldn't get their financial support. Is that because we don't have that kind of money here in the North American church? Of course not. I, you know, George Crow was my pastor for years at Northeast Press, and we were building a big educational building a number of years ago, and it cost a lot of money, and he got up one Sunday, he said, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we have all the money we need for our educational building. The bad news is it's still in your pockets. <laughs> now, your pastor didn't share any figure with me, but I think it would be wonderful if the faith mission giving this year would go over 200000 Wouldn't that be all? Awesome? I mean, that would not really be sacrificial for some people in this room. And I don't know anybody's financial circumstance. I just know the level that we're living in a middle-class church like this. Easily we could go over 200000 and take more missionaries on and get more people out to the one out of three that are still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Years ago, I was in a church that had a missions conference that went from Sunday to Sunday. I preached every night. A young couple came, sat right down here with two young children, came with their Bibles, their notebooks. They took notes every night. The last night, I gave an appeal for missionary service. They were the first ones out of their seat, came down to the front. I dealt with them, counseled with them. We talked together. They said, we're young, we're healthy, our kids are small. We both have a Bible degree education. And there's just one little thing that stands in the way of our going to the mission field. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, we just bought a house and we'd like to pay it off. And I said, well, how long do you think that's going to take? And they said, 25 years. <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. Faithfully paid off the mortgage. And everybody in their evangelical Bible-believing church is commending them for the careful way that they have built equity for their future. And I wonder if God is not looking at that young couple and saying to them, you fool! I'm going to pray, but before I do, I want you to read these verses out loud with me. You'll see them on the screen. It starts with the word command. This is God's word. Let's say these words together. Here we go. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Next verse, command. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is really life. What I've been talking to you about this morning is life that is really life. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your holy word, so contemporary, so up-to-date. I pray that you will bless your people here now as they prayerfully participate in St. Andrew Presbyterian Church's mission program and the mission-giving commitment. Lead each one. If they're not ready today, Lord, just lead them in the days to come and be with Pastor now as he leads us in Jesus' name.
Amen.